ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Here's a question. What if we turned a third of the Earth's oceans into marine parks within just seven years? What would that mean? It is a hugely contested idea, but that is the quest of the 30 by 30 initiative, 30% protected by 2030. So let's get salty on big ideas today. Hi, I'm Natasha Mitchell. Australia has 62 marine protected areas, and with the Macquarie Island Marine Park, which sits between Hobart and Antarctica, now set to triple in size, nearly half of Australia's oceans will be marine parks. From the recent Ocean Lovers Festival, RN's Cassie McCullough is joined by Tony Warby, head of the Mindaroo Foundation's Flourishing Oceans Program, marine scientists Eleanor Bruce and John Turnbull, both from the University of Sydney, and Captain Gordon Scott, a retired fisher and marine professional. So can we have it all? Happy fish, happy fishers. And what does protecting the ocean actually involve? Why don't we start with the 30 by 30 proposal? Now, perhaps, Tony Warby, you might be able to take us into this. It does sound like a slogan. Uh, It does sound like a slogan, but it's been a long time coming and there's meat behind it. Basically, 30 by 30 at an international level is a commitment to conserve 30% of the world's oceans and 30% of the world's land resources by 2030. And we are a very, very long way away from that, particularly in the oceans. You know, there's lots of different ways of accounting for marine parks, but the actual areas of the ocean globally that are fully protected is only a couple of percent. It's very, very small. There was a a big meeting, big international meeting, full of lots of important people in December of last year in, uh, in Canada when uh, there was a global agreement that 30 by 30 should uh, come into force, that it was uh, an agreement that we could all rally around and commit to. The challenge now is to ensure that it isn't a slogan and that it does have meat and that we have a plan in place to deliver on it because it's going to take a huge amount of effort and commitment and political will and bringing a lot of communities along with us in order to be able to deliver on it. So 30% of sea and land resources protected by 2030, in seven years from now. Yeah. So which organisations are involved with this around the world? So there's certainly a lot in the NGO space, which is um, the area that I represent. Mindaroo Foundation, as one example, is a partner in, a, um, in the Blue Nature Alliance. So we work with Pew and Conservation internationally together. We're looking at increasing the level of protection over 18 million square kilometres of ocean globally by 2027. That would be 5% of the world's oceans. Uh, we know that we can't get that, all of that area fully protected. We're looking at areas where we can increase the level at which those areas are currently managed. But I think it's important to say, and I'm sure my fellow panellists will agree, there's there's no low-hanging fruit when it comes to marine protected areas. They tend to be very hard fought. They're quite often very political. Um, Sometimes the easier they're declared, the easier they're overturned by a subsequent government. They are quite often used as a political football. And so The challenge, I think, for all of the organisations and the governments who've committed to this 
is to bring all of the communities along. We need coastal communities, we need traditional owners, we need everybody who has an interest in the ocean or has an interest in conservation to really come together and rally around this target because the science says that we need to do this. Um, we can't have sustainable fisheries in the other 70% of the world's ocean if we don't conserve the areas um, and have a high level of no-take uh, in ecologically important areas. So that's the ambition, that's what we're, we're really striving towards and uh, it's, you know, the, the last thing I'll say on this is I don't know anyone who thinks doing damage to the ocean is a good thing, right? I think even if we disagree, there's this endless tension between fisheries and marine protected areas, but most fishermen I know, they value ocean health more than anything because their livelihoods depend on it. And so we have to find ways of really bringing all of these different stakeholder groups together around a common cause. Mm -hmm. Yes, finding that common cause. Gordon Scott, perhaps you could explain to us what protections marine parks actually offer. And maybe you could explain a little of the different marine park zonings and the, the levels of protection or lack of protection they provide. Yeah, Cassie, that's a really good question. And, and this is something that the general public probably aren't aware of, is a marine park is nothing like a terrestrial national park. So the terrestrial national park is a national park in Australia. Is It's a look but don't take policy, OK? Leave nothing but footprints, take nothing but photographs. Marine national parks have sliding scales of protection. And in the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park, they're all colour-coded. So what we call a no-take zone is the green, the green areas on the chart, which is basically reasonably similar to a terrestrial national park, where the green zones is you can go there, you can look, but you can't touch, you cannot take. All right. The bulk of the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park and the bulk of the marine parks in Australia don't fall under the category. They fall under... In the Barrier Reef, it's the dark blue and the light blue zones and the yellow zones, which are basically you can do anything you want within reason. So you can commercial fish, you can recreational fish, you can collect some shells. All right, but by and large, most marine parks are not protected as we would expect a terrestrial national park to be. And that's something I'd like to see the public become more aware of. And it's not the public's fault, it's just a lack of education um, through our society. So to me is is the Great Barrier Reef, there's less than 20% of the Great Barrier Reef is actually a no-take zone, okay? So the fishing industry, commercial or recreational, sorry, can fish and extract from the Great Barrier Reef. And this is one of the reasons I've come into this, because in my lifetime, and I've been on the reef for 45 years, the damage I've seen from commercial fishing initially is, is terrible. I can't put in enough words to see what the damage I've done from the removal of edible fish and edible creatures from the ocean. We are now at a point now where recreational, because our society is becoming much more affluent, particularly in regional Queensland, as the recreational fishers can now afford quite large boats, they can get to the Barrier Reef. And we've seen, I believe, the recreational fishing industry has overtaken commercial fishing as the tonnage they're extracting out of the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. Um, and, and I believe from the scientists I talked to, this is similar along the whole, the whole coast of Australia. And, and commercial fishing is managed. You know, they've got to record the catches. These books have to go to fisheries. And the, the, the bottom line with management is if you can't measure it or you don't measure it, you cannot manage it. And in recreational fishing, we do not know what the wreck fishers are taking out of the ocean. And I'm a recreational fisher. I'm, I'm in this panel for the reason is I've seen what's happened in my lifetime. I've talked to my father. I remember my grandfather was three generations of recreational fishers out of Moreton Bay and also the Great Barrier Reef. And, and I'm horrified of what I've heard through, you know, being a third generation, I'm horrified about what I've seen in my lifetime 
I was on the phone to Valerie Taylor last week and she said the same thing. Valerie's been on the Barrier Reef for 50 years, since the, no, sorry, more than that, since the 1950s. And when you start talking to the people, in the, in the, our elder states people, what we've seen in our lifetime, we must do something about that. And this is why this 30 by 30 is so important. To my policy is the 30 has to be green zones. It has to be total protection, not OK, we'll give it a colour, you know, blue or yellow, or yellow, and you can still go out there and fish and we'll call it a marine park because it's not helping. It's not helping the future for ourselves, for our children, our children's children. And the beauty about a good green zone, and the science is there for it, a green zone is a fish-generating machine, OK? And we call it a spillover effect. The reefs, provided they're big enough, can only hold a certain amount of fish. The fish will get to that point, and the spillover, they move out to, to adjacent reefs and adjacent seas where you can catch them. And Neil Parry made the very salient point. It's like having $1,000 in the bank and you're living off the interest, OK? Your $1,000, your nest egg stays there. This is what a marine park, a good, well-managed, well-planned green zone does, is you've got a nucleus of asset, all right, and that is forever time feeding fish out. And that'll bring the fish closer in. And if we think about this, we can sell it. And I'm a recreational fisherman. I'm trying to get this in the rec the wreck fisher's mind is it's it's a win-win situation for all parties. Sorry. Yes, and you don't need to be a recreational fisher to to know just how hot that debate is. I see it explode on social media, and and it, it, it's really not you know something I'm involved in. So I can see that it's contentious, and also what is out of sight is out of mind. We don't know what's under the sea if we can't see it, and so perhaps it's not so obvious to it. It's very complex. What about you, John Turnbull? I guess, how effective, we just heard Gordon describing that beautifully, but how effective are fully protected areas, no-take or sanctuary zones, versus protected areas, which are zones inside marine parks that allow collecting and fishing, given that the latter comprise three quarters of our current marine park network. Yeah, there's a huge difference between the effect of a fully protected area and what we might call a partially protected area. So those blue and yellow zones, I'll call them partially protected because they do constrain some things, but not very much. And then the fully protected area means uh, no touch, no take. If you look at the, the sort of averages and generalise it over many, many zones, you get an uplift in biodiversity in the order of 50%. So that's an unprotected area might have 20 species. A fully protected area will have 50% more, have 30-odd species. Uh, and that varies, of course. There are a lot of other factors that come into that, whether it's sheltered, whether it's well-enforced, etc. But let's, let's say that's a general figure. And it doesn't sound like that much, but that's a huge difference in terms of biodiversity because when you skim off a few species, the functions that those species perform in the environment are lost. So it might be, say, you take out um, sharks. Well, sharks suppress the numbers of species below that they eat. So it might just be one category of, of animal that's removed, uh, but it can have a massive impact on the environment. So a roughly 50% uplift in species diversity and a two to three times uplift and sometimes even three and a half times uplift in biomass. And that's basically the number and size of fish. So what happens in a fully protected area, we let the fish grow to their full size. In a fished area, the, uh, the preference is to take the biggest fish first. And so we skim off those larger bodied um, individuals as a preference. Um, so what that does is it's the larger bodied 
individuals that reproduce the most. So in the early stages of a fish's life, they're not reproducing anything. They don't produce any eggs. They're just growing. They reach a point where they start to produce eggs or sperm, and then eventually they start to produce more and more of those. So the really big fish have so much more fecundity. They produce so many more young than uh, maybe a, just a little bit smaller individual of the same species. So that uplift in biomass, two to three times, sometimes three and a half times, has a massive impact on the amount of uh, new fish material that is produced by that area um, as we as we heard so they're the sort of headline figures the other thing I'd say in response to this question is uh, the study that we looked at we didn't just ask how good were fully protect areas we also asked can we detect any difference between a marine park area that's partially protected and an area nearby that has no marine park can we detect any difference? We looked at algae, invertebrates, fish, we looked at diversity, we looked at biomass, and then we looked at social factors. So we looked at, do people observe improvements in this area over time? Do they think this area is better than surrounding areas? Do they come to this area to see or interact with marine life? And out of all the factors that we looked at, um, over a dozen factors that we studied, we found no difference between partially protected areas and areas outside marine parks. So that leads to the question, why do we have them? They don't have a social value and they don't have an ecological value in terms of our study. And that study, by the way, you've talked about a tropical, that study was all the temperate parts of Australia. So if you, if you drew a line through Australia halfway down, going horizontally. The bottom half of Australia we called the Great Southern Reef. We studied 56 sites all the way around the Great Southern Reef from Port Stephens to Perth. So it's a very wide, um, large-scale study and we found we could not detect any difference between those partially protected areas and unprotected areas. So am I right to assume that you're advocating simply changing those to full protection? Well, I think the first step is to stop fooling ourselves. If we want to have an area which is partially protected, there are good reasons to have these areas. So, for example, you might want to um, preference one type of fishing over another. So you might say, well, let's give an area where people can recreationally fish, where they won't have to compete with commercial fisheries. Terrific. But let's not pretend it's having an ecological impact. Let's call it a recreational fishing zone or something else, but let's not pretend that it's a marine park. So I think that's the first step, is to start to be honest with ourselves about what these zones are doing. I'm not saying they don't have a reason to exist. There are other good reasons. For example, if you've got a sanctuary zone and you surround it by partial protection, it makes the sanctuary zone more effective. So there are several reasons to have these areas, but I think we need to call a spade a spade <laughs> and be honest about that and then the flow and effect of that is if we then say we're going to protect 30% of the ocean by 2030 to me that means 30% full protection. Now how do we get to 30%? One simple way would be to convert all of the partial protection in Australia to full protection because we've got about 30% marine parks now. 
But I would actually prefer to go back a step and say, well, let's actually look at where the biodiversity is. Let's see whether there are areas that currently are not inside marine parks which have special values. Um, they might be a region which has a high proportion of, say, soft corals, which often get missed in these studies. The other thing which often gets missed uh, when we put in place protection is all the invertebrates. We tend to think about the fish. But the shells and the urchins and the sea stars, they're actually the ones that are doing it toughest at the moment as a result of human pressure and climate change. Uh, they're the ones that are actually declining the most in southern Australia. Why is that? It's hard to say why. Uh, I think it's a squeeze. It's a paper that's about to come out, by the way. It's coming out in Nature next week. It's based on the reef life survey data that we've um, been collecting over 15 years. But if you can imagine, um, say, a tropical species which is living in the Great Barrier Reef, in the northern extent of its range, it's getting hotter water than the southern extent. So what we're seeing is a general pattern where species are declining in the northern end of their range, but that's being counteracted by an increase in their population in the southern extent of their range. So a tropical species has got somewhere to go. It can just grow in southern parts of Australia to counteract the declines in the northern parts. The southern species have nowhere to go. They don't have a cooler, shallow water area once they go off the tip of Tasmania. And so those invertebrates, particularly in southern Australia, which are slow to move and don't have anywhere else to go, they're the ones that are actually being hammered the most. It's all about real estate, I guess. Something uh, we all understand the pressures of well. What about you, uh, Professor Eleanor Bruce? I guess we've just heard you know, interesting ideas around the definitions. What are the challenges in ensuring that the location and the extent and the design of marine park areas are the best they can be? The 30 by 30 agenda is a really exciting one because MPAs have been recognised as sort of cornerstones to uh, marine conservation for many decades now. But it, it is still a spatial target. So if we're not designing and identifying or designating MPAs in the correct locations, as John was mentioning, there are priority areas from their, in terms of their biological richness. If those MPAs are not representative of these different ecosystems that John was talking about, then they may not necessarily be effective in achieving the sorts of conservation goals that we're really interested in and, and the whole purpose of these MPA networks. We also have to keep in mind that oceans are highly interconnected spaces. So ocean currents, ENSO events, changes in sea surface temperature, that can shift the way larval is moved around, um, pollutants are moved around. Even our nearshore areas are really closely linked to terrestrial catchments. So. We've got this challenge. We need to work out where to optimally, you know, where the optimal sites are for putting MPAs, and and not just sort of thinking in terms of the design of whether multiple use. So we talked. Other panelists have talked about that difference between really importantly high protected no-take areas versus sort of more general use areas where other activities are permitted. But we're interested in the size, really large-scale marine protected areas or small-scale marine protected areas but also the size and shape. So some really interesting research came out of the University, uh, State University of California recently that showed edge effects. So around the boundaries of uh, marine protected areas, we talked about uh, 
Gordon talked about spillover effects. So when we talk about spillover, that's really sort of the net um, volume of fish and larvae and eggs that may spill over outside a marine protected area and increase the biodiversity and the biomass on the edges or beyond. And that can be really important because it can actually increase um, commercial benefits. So it can increase fish landings and harvesting rates. But if you have fishers that are sort of fishing on the line, which was when we talk about that, we're talking about sort of fishing right up to the edge or the boundary of a marine protected area. What are the consequences of that? And if we've got really complicated marine protected areas with high, you know, really lengthy perimeters, you've got opportunity for exploitation right at the boundary. So that's where things like the buffers that John was talking about can be really useful to protect those areas. And some research sort of showed that the impact of those edge kind of activities that can deplete fish stocks, the effect of that can actually be seen as far in as a kilometre and a half a kilometre within a highly protected sanctuary zone or a no-take zone. And when you think globally, 40% of our, you know, what Gordon referred to as our green zones, so the really highly protected no-take areas, 40% of those globally are actually less than a square kilometre in size. So that makes them incredibly vulnerable. So that's why design, working out with these MPA should be located and how we manage them is really, really important. Gosh, hardly a kilometre. It doesn't seem like it's, it's almost worth the effort of all the legislative implications and implementation. Gordon Scott, what percentage of no-take zones will be in 3030? Do we know? Is that being discussed? Well, I brought that very question up when it, when it was first um, tabled and one of my emails just went back and said, if this is to work... The 30 must be a no-take zone. We've got to get past the point where we're fooling ourselves and this is being done for political pressures. And what Alan was saying is, historically, and I hate to say this, but within the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park, where most of my experience comes from, it was always set up to what do the commercial fishers want and then we will go for green zones which are less effective on commercial fishing. Okay, now the recreational fishing is becoming such a massive... I won't say problem, but it's a massive impact on the, within the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. They're fishing the areas which are which are, are, are um, available to them. So we need to come back to scientific driven to say what is the most vulnerable, what is the most special and unique, and that needs to be protected. Now we've got the issue going on the east coast, mate. We're trying to do something about getting the green zones around where we know where there's green earth shark aggregation sites, and it's a federal law, and we've had no traction with that at all. We need to come back and protect the, the scientifically tested and, and vulnerable areas quickly. But personally, I'd like to see, I know I'm getting a little bit off subject here, I think we need an immediacy of a scientific research zone which, the, which scientists can just walk out tomorrow and say, we need to protect this right now because we found something. We don't know it's vitally important, but we need to research it. And maybe that zoning is there for five years. That allows the scientists to get in there and do good science because it's no good trying to do science and there's spear fishing and recreational fishing and commercial fishing because the whole habitat is being modified and not modified for the better. And our scientists can get in there and they can work on it for five years. Now, if they find something that's vitally important and we decide it needs to be a green zone, it just rolls straight into a green zone or a no-take zone, same thing. But at the moment, the problems I've seen in my lifetime is they keep coming back to us and the politicians love to say this, oh, we need to see the science first. So away go the scientists to work on this, and after five years, the environment is completely changed. The ecosystem has been completely modified or degraded because of the extractive industries, and we don't really know what it's supposed to be like. And this comes back, we all talk about biodiversification, which is really important. The other thing is biomass. 
and when coming back to the subject, and one of the, the, the cool words of the day is, is um, sustainability, but we need to ask ourselves also, what are we sustaining? Are we sustaining a biomass at its level now, which is terribly, terribly degraded? Now, science out there is saying our oceans are down to about 10% of their original carrying capacity. That's what we've taken. And it may be as low as 1% in some areas. All right, so if we're going to go sustainable, we might be sustaining the ocean or a reef area at 1% or maybe 10% of what it used to be like. So sustainability, to my interpretation, and what I'd like to see is it's actually growing whilst we're extracting, the biomass is increasing. You know, it's going to be a lot slower than the no-take zone, which will come back very quickly. One more point here, what's been shown on the Great Barrier Reef, and climate change, coral bleaching, ocean acidification is a very, very real problem. What we've seen with our no-take zones is after a, a massive, in 2016, there was a massive bleaching event on the far northern barrier reef. Okay, 69% of the reef died. In the green zones, no-take zones, after 10 years, it came back. The places which are not no-take zones, blue zones, yellow zones, are still dead. They haven't come back. Okay, so we're getting another bite at the cherry with these green zones because we've got a, you know, we've got a new elephant in the room and it's climate change. And that's changing the whole landscape of what we're looking at. And that's why it's imperative that we protect larger sections of our ocean. Well, it, it is a, a complex and, and large problem and, and the solutions also are complex. Perhaps we could turn our minds to the international situation and perhaps you could describe for us our definitions of marine protection areas are one thing. How do they compare with our neighbours, for example? Maybe, maybe Eleanor. I think that's really an important question because often we discuss what's going on here in Australia and I think we're often heralded as being quite remarkable in the, in the total area that we've protected in marine protected areas. But again, that goes back to the question of are they green zones or are they... Are they you know, general use or, or um, blue zones. Internationally, marine protected areas are designated and protected and enforced under different sort of um, legislative frameworks and, and mechanisms uh, that do differ. Um, and, and it means that we've got different sizes all over the world. Every country sort of has a different approach. And it's sort of this 30-30 agenda really highlights the importance of having um, a connected approach to this. So we're actually thinking about a network of reserves not only within uh, national jurisdictions, but also in the high seas. So how do you actually pull together all the really detailed biological and the physical data that you need to work out where those reserves should be? And how, um, so if you've got, when you think about it, many of our marine species are actually migratory. So if we're only protecting one section of that species life cycle, are we actually protecting that species? There surely must be issues with in wanting to bring the world together in this effort, you'll accept what one country offers, even if it's not perhaps as good as ours. Is that a problem, Tony Warby? So there is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, um, IUCN, and there is a, a categorisation of marine parks, IUCN 1, 2, 3, 4, uh, etc. So there is a, a, a global standard, if you like, IUC 1 and 2 are what we would be striving for in terms of uh, the highest levels of protection. A lot of the green and yellow zones that we've heard about would be classified as IUCN 3 and 4. So there is at least that international standard and I think that gives us something to coalesce around and have ambition around. We want IUCN 1 and 2 in terms of the highest level of protection for, for marine parks. 
one of the challenges that we've got at the moment is even with all of the marine parks that are declared, there's at least 70% of them that are just, you know, they're not well managed, they're not properly managed, there's very little enforcement. You know, if we talk to our colleagues in Parks Australia, which is in the Australian Government, you know, one of the challenges they have is even knowing what is in the marine parks. A lot of them are offshore, they're around islands. Uh, it's very expensive to get a boat out there. When you do get a boat out there, how do you, I mean, just think about this. If you went out on a boat and you were told, please define, please tell us what's in this marine park, you know, how do you even go about that? And so there, the, the old fashioned traditional way is you throw a net over the back of your research vessel and you drag it through the water and you pull it up and everything ends up dead on the back of the deck and then you categorise it, right? And you count it and you come up with new species and old species and you get something about the size distribution of, of fish and you learn something about the marine park and in the process you've probably just killed a whole lot of marine life. There is a, an emerging and better way that we're starting to invest a lot of energy in, which is the use of environmental DNA. The big ambition here is that we'll be able to take a sample of seawater at different depths, different locations. Uh, you can filter it, you can sequence the DNA from it, and you can build up a picture of the marine life from the bucket of water. Now, it's by no means perfect because this bucket of water might be different to that bucket of water, might be different to that bucket of water, but if you get enough samples over time, uh, you can start to build up a picture of the marine life. And yes, we still need the reference libraries. If you identify a piece of DNA, you have to be able to say that's this particular species of shark or it's this particular species of stingray. But we're starting to go through all of the old fish collections all around the world to build up the reference library that we can compare environmental DNA samples against. So this really has the potential to revolutionise the way we observe the ocean, to modernise the way that we observe the ocean. We'll still need to drag a net occasionally, I'm sure. Uh, but in terms of being able to quickly identify and assess what is in a marine park or what is in a country's exclusive economic zone, we might even, through that process, identify a whole lot of new species. And I think to the point that was made earlier, if you identify something that's new and not known to us, then it should have automatic protection, right? That's the legislative framework we ought to be operating within until we know much more about its life cycle, how many of them there are, how old they are when they sexually mature, what is the sustainable rate at which you can fish them. These are the kinds of I think regulatory frameworks we need to put in place, but we can do a much better job of knowing what's in our marine parks so that we can manage them properly because that's one of the biggest challenges we have at the moment. Yeah, well managing is one thing, funding and policing are two other elements to this. John Turnbull, you're looking at the social aspects of these complex problems. How do you enforce it? How do you make these implementable legislative moves. Yes, and enforcement is a key aspect of an effective marine protected area. There are a number of characteristics that you need for it to work. One is the no-take, another is well-enforced, another is leaving it in place for a long time. Uh, so don't just give it a few years and say, oh, well, that didn't work. We need a decade or more because these systems take a long time to respond, to recover. Uh, and there are some others, but I think a key element in this is unless we're prepared to design from the ground up a marine park that is designed to be effective, so that means not just putting 
lines on maps, but then putting in place a funding model. Making it effective in areas of the world which aren't as wealthy as ours, where people rely on the sea for their protein, where we know that corruption is also endemic. That's right. So I think a key part of, of making in those uh, social ecological contexts a key part of making those effective is um, involvement of the local community from the very beginning. We see this uh, often with, say, Pacific Islands, uh, with small communities. They know that they're not pulling out of the sea what they used to, and, and they know that something has to change. And so working with local communities working with them to understand what's changing in their local waters. They're seeing it firsthand, but often they welcome scientists to work alongside them because scientists bring a more systematic approach. So it's one thing to observe, I think this is changing. It's another to have a graph that shows um, what's happening. So scientists, local communities, managers working together, it doesn't take long when you get those um, groups together for there to be a, 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 an immediate recognition that we need to do this differently. And there are then very flexible ways of making it work. So it may be it's only fully protected for three months of the year. Maybe that's when uh, the spawning and, and breeding activities are the most. It may be that we have a rotating series of protections. So this area is closed for these months, that area is closed for other months. It depends on the local community and the local systems, but there are so many ways of making an area effective, so long as you follow those key principles of not taking anything and making sure it's well enforced. Um, I'd just like to also pick up on um, that prior thread with a couple of other points. So we talked about international and, and whether or not this problem of partially protected areas is an international problem or an Australian problem. It's an international problem. So in Australia, roughly 75% of our marine protected areas are partially protected. So that means a quarter are fully. The global figure is around 70%. So it's really much the same. IUCN guidelines for establishing a marine protected area say that um, industrial scale extraction of resources, so commercial fishing and mining and so on, are incompatible with all types of marine protected area and yet around the world 70% allow that. So we have this clash between what we know is effective and what's actually being implemented. And so I think um, this idea of making a network that works has to be those, you know, multiple things. It has to be true protection in terms of the zoning, but then the effectiveness of management, the effectiveness of enforcement and the involvement of local people and money. <laughs> Eleanor Bruce, how do you see the, the funding of these protections? Yeah, so um, as both Tony and John said, um, unless you've got a funding mechanism to really support um, effective management and marine protected areas are linked to well-designed management plans and zoning plans, then the effectiveness of them can be questioned and then you end up with really just paper parks. So we have this really ambitious objective of having 30% of our marine landscape or seascape protected. 
but until you have that funding and opportunity to be able to enforce those uh, regulations that are associated with those areas, then they're not, you know, the goals won't be achieved. I think um, in terms of the research that I'm involved in, it gets more complicated in many um, places, or in coastal places around the world, where you've got livelihoods, as I mentioned before, that are really closely, inextricably linked to coastal systems. So when you think, well, generally, there are two really main things that influence um, non-compliance of regulations in marine protected areas. And one of those is food security, um, and the other is, you know, security of income. So if these communities in, in a lot of low-lying coastal environments in the South Pacific and Southeast Asia, that's their livelihood. That's how they're bringing dollars into the household. And so it's a really important narrative to look at including and ensuring there's buy-in of local community in any design um, of a marine protected area. In Australia, we've got, you know, incredibly privileged that we've got thousands of years of caring for sea country in traditional knowledge systems and traditional practices. And that should also inform the design of our marine protected areas. In some of the areas that we work in in Southeast Asia and, and uh, the South Pacific, we also need to think about who it is that's being displaced when marine protected areas are designated. Just to give you an example, in nearshore areas, so you think about the intertidal area, high levels of biodiversity, um, really kind of vulnerable in terms of climate change, so sea level, coastal acidification, things like that. And often it's the women that are harvesting the seafood in these areas. So in the intertidal areas, it's often the women that are engaged in what's called gleaning, so collecting shellfish, mud crabs in that intertidal area. So if we're putting no take, particularly no fishing areas, are we displacing uh, income sources for these women? And do they have you know, the capacity to find alternative sources of income and livelihood? Some of the, the fisher folk are then, if we're protecting these nearshore areas, potentially requiring, you know, needing to access vessels to be able to go offshore and possibly going into, you know, outer areas and high sea areas that are possibly a little bit more treacherous for small or small scale fishing boats. So these sort of equitability issues are also something that need to be considered. What about imposing some financial penalty or cost on commercial fishing? Do you think it stuck in a bartering war with commercial entities who say, well, we've, we're paying 20% of our profit to you, so we are entitled to X, Y, or Z. Is that a slippery slope? Does that work now? That's a brilliant topic. And remember, I'm coming from this from a recreational fishing angle of what I've seen disappear in my lifetime. But if we look at prime industries, we take farming, for instance. You know, the farmers own that one block of land. They've got to clear it, they've got to plough it, they've got to fertilise it, they've got to plant it. They put an amazing amount of effort, money, time, emotions into growing their product to sell to us for our table. Our commercial fishing don't do anything. They do absolutely zero for an ocean which belongs to everybody. As I've gone through this evolution of myself, I used to be very angry with the commercial fishing industry, I got very angry with the recreational fishers, but then I realised they're only doing what the government lets them do. All right? They are operating within, most of them, within the letter of the law. So the change has got to come from our politicians and from our government departments. And, and I think the recreational fishing lobby on side, because I came up with a slogan last year, which is bring back the fish. You know, I remember as a kid, I could ride my bike five miles down to the beach around in Morden Bay and I could put my line in and I could catch myself two fish because that's all my dad would let me take. That's enough for tonight and I'll bring it home. And thankfully, I grew up in a household whilst they were recreational fishers, they were very, very strongly 
environmentally conscious, which means you don't take any more than you can eat today. All right? And I think that needs to be something which we bring back from the, on, in the recreational fishing mentality. And the people I'm talking to, I think that the greater, the greater populace of the recreational fishers want to start protecting our resource. They want something there for themselves. They want something there for our kids and our children's children. Mm -hmm. But there's a very loud minority voice who the politicians are terrified of. They hold a very small percentage. But, you know, where you could walk down to Bondi here, if we do this properly, all right, in five years' time, throw a line off there and catch two snapper or something, take it home. There's your dinner. You can't do that now. We're not sustainably protecting our oceans. We're not sustainably taking out of our ocean. And that will only come from massive scientific investment so the scientists are working alongside the government, alongside the recreational and the commercial fishers. So we know exactly what we can take. And as our population increases, the bag limits have got to go down. That's just common, that's just basic mathematics. But that's not happening at the moment. You know, we're getting a higher boat ownership in the recreational fishing, all right, but the bag limits have, almost in Queensland haven't changed. So that's the, that's the amateur or recreational. Amateur recreational, yes. Tony Warby, what about the, the commercial part of this and, and that danger of entering into an ongoing endless bartering with the commercial industry. This is in a sense the age-old tension in ocean conservation. It's, uh, it's marine protected areas and fishing rights and we have to find a way of lifting the conversation above what we do here and what you do there to actually a hundred percent sustainably managed ocean um, that includes no-take marine protected areas 30% please, because that's what the science tells us that we need, and sustainable fishing in the other 100%. And I think we need, we need to approach it in a really holistic way. And we shouldn't just focus on what does it take to fund the conservation areas. We need to have the conversation around what does it take to properly manage 100% of our exclusive economic zone and 100% of our ocean. Having said that, there are a number of quite innovative ways in which marine parks are starting to be funded. I work for a philanthropic organisation and we've learnt over and over again internationally that you can put philanthropic money into a conservation project, but as soon as you step back, the conservation project tends to fall in a heap. Um, and that happens on uh, environmental conservation projects and it quite often happens on social impact uh, programs as well. So we're confronted with the challenge of where well, you can't just keep putting philanthropic money in forever, so what, what is the mechanism that continues to fund a marine park when you step back and put your attention somewhere else? In Nui, which is a little island in the Pacific, they're selling ocean conservation credits. You can go onto their website and for 250 New Zealand dollars buy a square kilometre of their marine park and give it to your brother or sister for Christmas. They'll love you for it. It's a fantastic Christmas present. You don't even have to think too hard about it. It's a couple of hundred bucks. That's one way. And like the global community is actually watching that really closely. It's like, well, if a billion people decide that's a great idea, well, guess what? You know, there's a problem solved. There's other areas in the South Atlantic. So there's an island called Tristan de Kuna, which is an external territory to the UK. A group of philanthropists actually got together and put 10 million pounds into an endowment that pays a dividend that enables the locals, they get a revenue stream of about 300 to 350,000 pounds a year from that. 
and that's enough to help them manage the marine park. So there are various mechanisms that the conservation community is starting to look at. Obviously, in wealthy countries like Australia, we've, we've got um, government uh, who, who need to be front and centre in this conversation, but there are other ways that are being explored really actively. And this whole question about how do we make nature investable? How do you get a return as an investor, as an impact investor, by investing in nature where you get an environmental return? You might take a, you know, a slightly smaller financial return, but you're doing a whole lot of good with your money. Well, perhaps I've been focusing a little on the problems. There has been a recent breakthrough of sorts. For nearly two decades, there have been discussions with all uh, countries who are members of the United Nations about a high seas treaty. And on the 4th of March, that's been signed. This is a huge step forward. Perhaps you could explain it to us, Eleanor? Tony might know a bit more about that, but uh, the treaty still has to come together. It is exciting in, in many ways, but the high seas, basically it's identifying that you need 30 by 30 or 30% of the high sea areas, so they're areas outside national jurisdiction, to be protected as well. So it's not just up to individual countries. A big challenge there is being able to monitor those areas. So Tony talked about um, eDNA, but how do you then, you know, these are often, to, to try and meet that 30%, there's, I guess, a tendency to just declare really large protected areas. Um, so we're talking about over 100,000 square kilometres um, to boost that, that spatial target. But then how do you, how do you actually monitor them? And often, um, so eDNA could be one, one solution, but also using things like emergent technologies. So satellites and uh, UNSW and Sydney Uni are actually developing a satellite. There's a a 3D printer of it just on the other side of that wall, which is a tiny CubeSat that has a sensor on it that's specifically designed to be able to map coastal features. It's the biggest challenge of being able to monitor what's going on in the nearshore area and offshore is actually being able to see underwater. So sensors that be able, can help us be able to map and discriminate seagrass and macroalgae and things like that are really important. So I don't know if I answered your question in terms oh. of the treaty, but you know it's a really important step forward. But you know, unless we're just looking at more paper parks, how do we actually monitor the effectiveness of these areas? Maybe, Gordon Scott, as a master mariner, you could tell us what happens well, on the high seas. Eleanor was absolutely right. There's been some terrible things, you know, I've seen once again in my lifetime. But just to give you some dollar figures of what the Barrier Reef, and this is, you know, to say where money can come from, the Barrier Reef, um, the year running up to COVID, the income from the Barrier Reef in total was $6.2 billion, Okay. 90% of that's tourism. So 10% commercial recreational fishing only accounts for 10% of what the Barrier Reef brings in. All right? Tourism only visits 7% of the Barrier Reef. So it's all clusters around Port Douglas, Cairns, Airlie Beach and with Sundays. Okay? So if you looked at this as a purely financial exercise, it's a no-brainer for the jewel in the crown of Australian tourism. All right? It's bringing in $6.2 billion. All right? Why are we allowing it to be degraded, and it has been decimated by extractive practices over the years. You know, to tax $6.2 billion of income and put that directly into science, research, policing, all right, not into consolidated revenue, so it becomes a self-fulfilling and self-funding prophecy, and that can be the same for the whole, you know, the, the, all Australian waters. And I know this 30 by 30 is an international thing. My experience is with the parks in, in Australia. So... The money's there to do it, it's the will and the effort and the focus we need from 
government and politicians to realise that, as I said earlier on, this is a win-win situation. If we do this properly, there's going to be fish there for generations to come if we manage it and police it properly. All right. The other thing going forward is the other countries won't. Whilst they'll try, they won't manage their fisheries as well as we can. All right. And then all of a sudden, you've got something to sell at a premium because you got the good seafood. So you're building a nest egg whilst we can still commercial fish, whilst we can still recreational fish. And as I said, the reason I'm here is, is I'm looking at this from a recreational point of view, is how do we bring the fish back for all of us where we can go and catch something close to shore? But yes, we have to fish within a manageable, sustainable way where the fish stocks are actually increasing in our ocean to get back to where they were. You know, I'd like to say our baseline is when white people turn up in Australia. So wind the clock back 220 um, years or whatever it happens to be exactly and say, OK, let's make that our baseline. How do we bring our fish stocks back to that? And now we've got a self-generating with the right no-take zones, which are spilling fish over, that we can keep taking out, provided it's sustainable. Well, we've only got a minute or two left. Perhaps I might just ask you all, you know, what should we, everybody listening you know, here in the room and, and also on radio, you know, what should we be looking for? What should we be calling for in our capacity as individuals i'll start with you john turnbull you know like this is you're the you're the people quantifier yeah (laughs) well it's interesting we don't have to convince people that this matters in the work that we did interviewing people we found that uh, the vast majority of people really want to look after their local area really want the oceans to be well managed and really want to see good protection 92% of the people we spoke to supported having sanctuary zones. Incidentally, if you narrow that down to the people who fish, 91% of those people supported having sanctuary zones. So we do have a small number of people with a disproportionately loud voice. I think the answer, therefore, is just to realise that the things that we feel and the things that we believe are important, we need to become more vocal about. I don't think the problem is people wanting this and I don't think the problem is people understanding that the oceans are in trouble. I think the problem is making that voice heard. Uh, that would be my observation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's get on with it. Eleanor Bruce, what would you point to and I guess what would you like to see? With MPAs, you're negotiating the social priorities, the economic priorities the the biological, the biodiversity priorities, and then you've got the political layers on top of that. So you've often got lots of different stakeholders, many of them really enthusiastic, as John was saying, but some of them with divergent views as, as has been identified in these discussions. So how do we come up with ways of bringing people on board, um, ensuring there's uptake, not just in Australia, but where you've got other marine protected areas in other countries where livelihoods can really matter. And how do we make sure that minority voices are also included in the way things get designated and and, uh, allocated to marine protection? Including Indigenous ones, which is a whole other area. Gordon, what about you? No, they're all three excellent points. I like to stir the pot a bit and say, you know, the the, the key words of the day are, you know, equality and anti-discrimination. So if we wanted to make it equal and non-discriminatory, everyone in this room's obviously got very strong environmental views. So we could say to the fishermen and say, well, you can have 50% and we'll have 50%. You can fish in 50% and we'll protect 50%. But that's going to be like a nuclear bomb going off. But to be serious, Eleanor's quite right. You know, and John and also uh, and Tony is, it's the voice. People need to hear. The politicians are terrified of the fishing lobby because they have this perception that the fishing lobby is massive. And if they go against the fishing lobby, they're going to lose their political job. 
you know, this is a getting a collective together of the people, and we don't want to, we don't want to stop fishing. And this is about me. I don't want to stop people fishing. We're going to restrict where you can fish, so you can catch more fish in the long term. So this is not about lockouts, and I love to use these inflammatory terms about thin edges of a wedge or it's a lockout. It's not that at all. We're trying to get you something for the future, so you can catch fish. But getting back to the the point is. You know, as a collective voice, you go to your politicians and you say, if you don't do something about large green zones off our coast where we get some generative fishing so we can start to catch more fish, we will vote you out. We're going to look for the person who's going to do the right thing by the fishing groups, also by the environmental people who are environmentally aware and conscious and proactive. One more thing, recreational fishing licences. Okay, you want to fish, you pay for it. We don't have that in Queensland. I would like to see... You know, this is the same bird in every country, particularly in America, is it's very, very well managed and you must have a fishing licence, all right? And that money goes into our scientists, our researchers and policing as well. Engage the Recreational Commission community. Tony Warby. Last laugh, hey? You know, I guess my key message is there just is no healthy planet without a healthy ocean, right? It's core to our well-being to have a healthy ocean. And I'm not politically aligned at all, but what I will say is that we've got some pretty good political leadership at the moment on this topic. Tanya Plibersik is the Minister for the Environment. She announced that there'll be a National Ocean Summit, that Australia will be developing a sustainable ocean plan over the next couple of years. And I would just echo what everybody else here has just said. We have to engage with that process. We have to have high ambition around it and our politicians need to hear our voices. So don't die wondering. Now's the time. Thanks. Yeah, no, thank you all. And thank you also for being part of this. Thank Thank you. you. And we're coming back to shore now after being at sea. Today you heard from marine scientists Eleanor Bruce and John Turnbull from the University of Sydney, Tony Warby from the Mindaroo Foundation's Flourishing Oceans and retired fisher Captain Gordon Scott. And our host was RN's Cassie McCullough. You can find Cassie with Kate Evans each week over on the Bookshelf podcast. Find Big Ideas and the Bookshelf on the ABC Listen app as ever. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.